0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Brian Fagan about the new book, Climate Chaos, Lessons on Survival from Our Ancestors, written by him and Nadia Jorani a 30,000-year history of the relationship between climate and civilization that teaches powerful lessons about how humankind can survive. Human-made climate change may have begun in the last 200 years, but our species has witnessed many eras of climate instability. Climate Chaos is a book about saving ourselves. Brian Fagan and Nadia Jurani show in remarkable detail what it was like to battle our climate over centuries and offer us a path to a safer and healthier future. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I would like to start by asking, how has this uh, pandemic affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience?
0: It hasn't affected me that badly because a lot of the travel I had done for this book and that I had done had been done earlier, before the pandemic. And we've basically been isolated and communicating by email, not only with each other, but with others. Fortunately, the web now is a fantastic resource. Because everybody who publishes a paper seems to put it on the web as well. The biggest problem for me has been access to the University of California libraries because one cannot visit them in person. But I've done well and uh, everything worked out. Fortunately, most of the work on this book was done before the research, was done before the pandemic came down. So we
1: were lucky. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself?
0: Well, I was, as is obvious, I was born in England. Uh, I still have somewhat of a British accent, although I've been in California for 55 years. I was born in England, educated at Cambridge University in England, and then spent seven years in Africa, in Central Africa, in what is now Zambia, working in the National Museum and doing research on early farming societies in Central Africa. And this I happened to do at a time when such research was becoming very fashionable. And I was in on the foundations of multidisciplinary African history, which is where we uh, are deployed all kinds of sources such as historical records archaeology and so on to writing the history of black africans and this was extremely successful and worked well and of course is now flourishing so in a sense i was a pioneer then by chance i got a visiting professorship at the university of illinois in urbana spent a year there the climate nearly killed me it was so cold and then i by chance again got a job at the university of california santa barbara where i spent 36 years teaching i then retired very thankfully i was burnt out on teaching and for the last 17 years or so i've been writing books traveling lecturing and bicycling and i'm also or was a very th- serious cruising sailor and did a lot of that. But I've given that up now because at age 85, one does not dance around decks on small yachts with any safety. But I do bicycle. I bicycle on a high-speed electric assist tricycle, which keeps me fit and keeps me out in the open air. Um, I'm married with one daughter living at home. And she and I go back nearly 40 years. So I've been very happy and I've been in Santa Barbara a long time. So that's my career. I'm a retired professor, but really at this point, an independent scholar, which is far more fun because I don't have to deal with academic politics or bureaucracy.
1: Oh, this sounds truly fascinating. So, do you have anything to say to our younger listeners or students who might be interested in following career in the climate, for example? I think that today
0: is a time of extraordinary opportunities, but you have to work fine, hard to find them. The competition is much more severe. And to people living in America... I would say as soon as possible, go and do some work abroad because it will give you a much better appreciation of how diverse the world is. And if you can get some experience in a developing country, this is of enormous value. I had seven years in Africa, and that gave me instant sights into subsistence farming and the constant threat of hunger, which otherwise I would never have got. And this was very humbling and had a profound effect on how I thought about the past. And that sort of experience is priceless. The other thing I would say, people say, do you you become an archaeologist? The thing about archaeology is that there are large numbers of us already. Funding is very short, but the biggest opportunities will be for the next few years, certainly, will be in what they call community archaeology, which is working local, local with local communities, working on heritage, preservation, and so on. And this is a rapidly expanding field of archaeology. Conventional academic archaeology you can get into, but you've got to be very, very good and very competitive and to have done a great deal of publishing. And academic life does not appeal to a lot of people. I must confess, I am one of them. I'm not very fond of it.
1: So your latest book is Climate Chaos, Lessons on Survival from Our Ancestors and that you wrote with your co-author, Nadia Durrani. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
0: The, let's start with Nadia. Nadia was my co-author and uh, intellectual partner She and I have worked a lot over the years, a lot of textbooks we've done. She's a wonderful partner. She is an expert and has a PhD on, of all things, the archaeology of Yemen. But she has acted as an editor of a couple of journals in England, archaeological journals, and is now working on a magazine called Archaeology Worldwide, which is an online magazine, which has just started up. And I'm giving a help with that. We correspond constantly, We're constantly going back and forth and planning new projects. So that's how that happened. And she and I really got on this climatic thing, because about 10 years ago, and more recently, I wrote a series of books on ancient climate, one on El Niños, one on the Little Ice Age, which was about round figures a thousand years ago, one called the Great Warming, which was an account of climate change since the Ice Age over fifteen thousand years. That oddly enough got me onto John Stewart's Daily Show, which was a fascinating experience. I wrote a book called The Attacking Ocean, which was about rising sea levels, but. A number of very eminent historians and archaeologists, particularly historians, pointed out to me about four years ago that these books were scientifically out of date because in the last few years there's been a genuine revolution in the study of ancient climate, which has now acquired great precision, largely thanks to the fact that we have a large number of different what they call climatic proxies in different ways of measuring climate change. And when I tell you that we now have temperatures for changing European climate over the last 2000 years and rapidly getting towards that in North America, you'll understand that if you've got climate change records going back to the seven, seven season, say for the last 1000 years, you've got a very, very effective weapon for thinking about climate change today. So what we did, and we were astonished at the information, was basically to write a book that brought all these four books together and updated them and into a narrative with the final chapter talking about, look, we have all this information about ancient climate What lessons does this have for the future and for today? And to our astonishment, there were considerable significant lessons which are largely ignored by particularly politicians who seem to live from one election to the next instead of worrying about governing a
1: country. I love it. So learn from the past to bring a better future.
0: Yes, but let's get it quite clear. The past has been described by a number of scholars as a foreign country. It's not. For one very simple reason, Galena, we're all Homo sapiens. We're all human beings. And the way we react to, say, earthquakes or volcanic eruptions and other disasters is virtually identical emotionally to what it was In Roman times, for example, the reason I know this is that I was asked to give a lecture some years ago to a national organization of emergency preparedness people. You know, these incredibly calm people who come and look after you when there's an emergency, like an earthquake or something. And I realized then, doing the research for this, that emotions had not changed much. And this was one of the reasons I really got into this because the lessons we learn from the past are not that history is going to repeat itself. It won't. Our world is very different from that of the Romans or medieval Europe or colonial America or Australian Aboriginal Australia. Very different. And this is why we have to think about the lessons we can learn from it. And the lessons come from institutions, from our own way of planning and thinking, mobility, how do we cope with uh, climate change and so on. One of them, for example, is the fact that we live in such a crowded world full of cities with millions of inhabitants that to move away from, say, a drought or flooding is incredibly difficult if not important impossible. And if you realize that cities like Mumbai or Shanghai or London are virtually on at sea level or Miami, and sea levels are rising by the foot in the next century or so, and billions of people live right at sea level, you and I, who are our descendants, have got a serious problem. But the problem is already here and in the next 50 years, it's really gonna hit us. And historically, 50 years is nothing. It may seem like a lot to us, but it isn't.
1: So let's delve into some of the science and stories that you um, uh, cover in your book. And can we start with the basics? So what is paleoclimatology? Paleoclimatology
0: is the study of ancient climate paleos being the Greek word for old. And this field has actually been around for a while. It really didn't get into prominence until about the last 60 years. And there was, among others, a remarkable Englishman whose name, believe it or not, was Hubert Lamb, who became a climatological detective. And he did an enormous amount of work on reconstructing, for example, the history of storms in the North Sea, which had a catastrophic effect with surges on the coast of the Netherlands, for example. And then there was a remarkable astronomer called A.E. Douglas, who was an expert on sunspots, And he got involved way about 100 years ago into the study of tree rings. Those are the growth rings of tree trunks, which vary with the amount of rainfall. And this research all came together. And then we had this huge hoo-ha about El Ninos and global warming in the last 60 years, starting really in the late 50s and 60s. And this generated funding for very intense study of climate, which in the past a lot of this had been estimates guesses, but now we have people who are experts on highly sophisticated types of tree wings, for example. We have people who are experts on isotopes in people's skulls preserved. For example, there is a burial mound in southern Britain where they've just discovered that the entire burial mound, which was big, was only used for about 100 years by people who were all related to one another where they had children together. That sort of precision. And that sort of precision in the study of ice cores drilled into ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland and into the Andes and into the Alps, or... The study of lake cores, the same sort of thing. Even the study of cores drilled from stalagmites and stalactites in caves. All of this provides us with more or less accurate, not completely accurate, chances to look at how climate change changed at the local level and at the continent-wide level and ultimately at the global level, in ways which were completely unknown, really, even 60 years ago. So we really are in a new era where the study of climate change, ancient and modern, is highly sophisticated, increasingly precise, and is producing information which gives us an insight, and this is the point we make in the book, that... History of climate change is important because it always has had a, a play, a role to play in societies which lived from one harvest to the next. For instance, if you look at the ancient Maya, who were one of the great flamboyant civilizations of the Americas, they, we've known this for years, in the 9th century AD, suffered from drought. How do we know this? We knew it from lake cores in general terms. And then in recent years, they've looked at stalagmites and stalactites, speleothems as they call them. And we now know there were cycles of drought in the 9th and 10th century, which were pretty intense. And these can be correlated quite closely with the abandonment of myocytes. So we're beginning to really get an idea of the effects of climate change. And I think what one does, you think about an absolutely calm pond and you throw a pebble into it and there's a plop and a momentary hole and from the hole radiate rings. And as the rings get wider and wider, they gradually, gradually subside. Because the point about climate change, ancient and today, is not the fact that it occurs. It's not the fact that it affects us. I mean, there is no direct correlation between, say, a drought and a civilization collapsing. What causes that civilization to collapse or to prosper are the social Economic and climatological consequences of events. And that is really important.
1: So you mentioned some of the techniques that you use to study uh, ancient climate. And one of the techniques that you also mentioned in your book is dendrochronology. Could you let us know what that is? Dendrochronology is the
0: study of tree wings. Dendros is the Greek word for tree. And Alexander Douglas, who did the work in the southwest back in the 1920s, mainly, and 30s, was an expert on sunspots. And he thought there was a link between sunspots and dreamings, which in fact there is. And he did the first curves. And what he did was look at old trees, sequoias. And he got what he called a floating curve, where he found climate records going back in the first millennium AD and in the early second, but it wasn't linked to today. It was a floating chronology. But eventually, in a pueblo in Sholo in Arizona, he found a beam in an Indian pueblo which linked his tree rings to modern ones. And since then, we've got thousands and thousands of tree ring readings, hundreds of sequences, and literally they can track the progress of, say, a major drought from the northwest to the southeast across the southwest. And in recent years, it's moved out. They do oak trees in Germany and go back about 8,000 years. They're doing it in New Zealand. They're doing it in Cambodia and Vietnam. Uh, They're doing it in England, it's all over the place. They even now date cathedral beams and even the oak panels upon which old masters were painted. Probably the most fascinating one, now this is really interesting, was there was a famous Stradivarius violin which of course is the Leonardo da Vinci of violins which it's called, they all have names, the Messiah. And it was thought to be a modern copy. And about 20 years ago, a couple of tree ring scientists took some teeny sample from the inside of the case of the Messiah. And they found not only that this tree ring came from the Alps, from, I think it was a large tree, but they found that it had actually been made with two timbers from the tree. When you get down to that sort of position, it really becomes fun. So tree-wing chronology, within the period it happens and where you find it, is enormously valuable. And dendrochronology now, with all the statistical manipulations and so on they can do, is a highly sophisticated science. It is a subspecialty of uh, climatology in its own right.
1: So uh, with all of the techniques that we have, uh, how precise can we be about the ancient climate?
0: We can be with varying degrees of accuracy. In Europe now with tree rings, we now have a pretty good idea of climate temp- temp- temperatures in different seasons of the year. When you're looking at ice cores in Greenland, we are now beginning to get a a resolution which is down to a year or two. On the other hand, and of course, stalagmites too, tend to be pretty accurate. Uh, I would say a lot of it now is accurate to within a decade, a great deal within 50 years. So we are getting much more precise.
1: So what were some of the major climatic drivers for the ancient climate?
0: The major, uh, major climatic drivers, um, the big one, and the, one of them is the angle of the Earth's to the sun. Um, a great deal, of course, depends on climate, carbon, carbon levels in the atmosphere and, and things like that. So there are a large number of them, of which I would say common levels are some of the most important. And also, of course, global temperature has an enormous effect. And the ice age with its nine, at least nine severe cold periods was a major catalyst in all this. Because when you had an ice age coming in, as we did about 120,000 years ago, it came in pretty fast. But the warming is much more gradual at the end. So you get this sort of constant yo-yo of changes of climate from cold to warm and or warmer. But what is not often realized is that you're not looking at cold and warm and cold and warm. You're looking at constant fluctuations. For example, there was a period in the height of the late ice age when it was pretty cold, generally around, I think, 23 24,000 when there was a brief period when summer temperatures in Europe were only a little cooler than today. And there was a period about 11,000 years ago when, for a thousand years, near Arctic conditions returned to Europe. And that was because the Gulf Stream got shut down by a release of fresh water into the Atlantic from. The great ice sheets in North America, which skidded across the fresh water, skidded across the denser salt water, and literally stopped the circulation of the Gulf Stream. And then, when the effects of that reduced temperatures rose fairly rapidly, and we're now in the modern era. The interesting thing is that today we have persistent warming, and the question of questions is: Will this be uh, resumed, uh, be interrupted by another? glacial period, and most people seem to think it will not.
1: So what were some of the notable climate events during our history that we know about, you write in your book?
0: There are a considerable number of them, which are of considerable historical importance. The first one was this event I just talked about of a thousand years of cold which is known as the Younger Dryas, named after an Arctic plant, actually, which was first identified in Scandinavia uh, from retreating glaciers and tree rings. And this ended around 10,000. And this was a period when agriculture and animal husbandry first began to come into widespread use in the Middle East. And this was a very significant period. But how significant it was a global cooling, we still don't really know. But a lot of these were drought periods. For example, between 2200 and 1900 BC, there was a huge mega drought, which has been referred to as the 4,200 year old event. There was another major one from about 802 to 1030 AD. There was a significant cooling during Roman time, the middle Roman times. So there were a lot of them. The most recent ones, which are the best known to people in the world generally, are the (coughs) so-called medieval warm period, which actually wasn't nearly as dramatic as that suggests. There have been people who have said, "Ah, <laughs> this was, of course, medieval warming as warm today, and is evidence that global warming is entirely natural." In fact, uh, this medieval warm period was a period of considerably varying climate, and certainly was much more volatile than today and cooler. Then there was the most famous of these periods which was the Little Ice Age, which was from about, mm, say, 1150 to about 1800. And this period is famous for its cold. For example, you've got the famous ice fairs on the River Thames in London, where the Thames regularly froze over, which it hasn't done for almost a century. You've got uh, glaciers advancing in the Alps so seriously that they called in priests to tell Jod that humanity had sinned and that the glaciers should retreat uh, you've got shortages of food the most famous of course and a lot of this was triggered by volcanic eruptions which are of course a major Contributor to temporary cooling. And if you get, as you did in the early 19th century, a burst of volcanic activity and the ash forms and uh, obscures the sun, you are looking at temporary cooling. And the most famous of all these is the famous year without a summer of 1815. And this caused major disruptions in Europe. It caused huge shortages and during 1816 a British poet who's quite well known in England, he's not very well known in America, Percy Bysshe Shelley and his wife Mary Shelley and Lord Byron the poet lived in a villa by the Fris Lakes and they were confined inside sitting by the fire and it was then that Mary Shelley wrote one of the immortal 19th century books, Young um, Frankenstein, which became a cult almost, and of course is immortalized by the Hollywood movie Young Frankenstein, which oddly enough was on TV here about three weeks ago. And that caused significant cooling all over the place in New Zealand, in North America, And elsewhere and indeed in China in northern China it had a significant impact on food supplies because very often you have to realize that a thousand years ago nearly everybody in Europe alone lived at a subsistence level and one of the most significant impacts of the Little Ice Age was on the colonists who just settled at Jamestown in North America, they practically starved and were just about to give up when an expedition turned up with supplies. So the impact of these events, particularly on societies which are living close to the edge and literally live from one harvest to the next, can be very, very severe. Then, since then, of course, We've had warming, we've had the industrial revolution, so-called coal pollution, and today's warming.
1: So the human societies were shaped mostly by the climate during the history. And how did this anthropogenic warming came about? Uh, Which warming? Anthropogenic.
0: Anthropogenic, Mm -hmm. there is now, I think, Relatively, very, very little doubt that the way anthropogenic global warming, humanly caused global warming, truly really began was during the Industrial Revolution with the widespread adoption of fossil fuels to power steam engines, mines, factories, locomotives, and so on. And if you look, for example, at oil paintings of, of watercolors too, of the River Thames in London in the late 19th century, many of them show the pollution in the air caused by coal fires and there were these famous pea soup fo- uh, fogs which literally were so thick you could see in front of your face which were immortalized in the novels of Sherlock Holmes among other. and in fact, Back in the 1960s, I was in London during one of the last of these and they truly were dreadful. They smelt and were really thick to the point that buses couldn't run. It was pretty severe. And I was giving a lecture in a learned society. Three people turned up. (laughs) So (laughs) it was pretty catastrophic. So today's smokeless fuels make a great difference. Now, when... anthropogenic global warming actually began is something that is vigorously debated. It is debated because some scholars believe that it began with the clearance of forests and the beginnings of agriculture. Others say it was the industrial revolution. Nobody really knows, but certainly humans, once they started clearing and changing the environment, can have at least some effect on global
1: climate. So as we learned from your book, Earth has been going through these uh, cycles of uh, climate uh, changes. So how this human-made climate change so different to what has been uh, observed previously?
0: Well, the, the fact is that the difference is very profound because if you look at warming, It is now continuing all the time because it is overwhelming the natural forces that kept it in control before. For example, uh, there was much less freezing in the Arctic, and that has an effect on global winters. You get much warmer summers. You get much more extreme weather events, some of which have a permanent effect on human societies. So really, it's the extreme weather events which are the most striking, and also the fact that it, the climate is now less cyclical. You're not getting the periods of colder climate lasting, say, centuries, like a drought in the American Southwest about 1,000 years ago, where you get... Um, events happening that do trigger more rainfall, whatever. Uh, It now is a long-term trend towards warming, which has no end in sight. And there is absolutely no question that this was caused by human activity. There are people, of course, today who are still denying that climate change is that important at all. These people are to put it mildly delusional they have ideologies which bear no resemblance to reality the fact of the matter is that we are in a world where we have to live with high, with warming and the question is how do we cope with it and that and how do we reduce global temperatures and global carbon levels and this is a problem which We have to grapple with. And one of the problems with it is that it isn't a problem necessarily for us. It's a problem for our children, our great-grandchildren, and generations not even born. And we're going to have to spend a huge amount of money, for example, erecting sea defences like the Dutch have been doing for centuries. And a lot of this isn't investment for us. It's investment for the future of humanity. And politically, in a world where everything is about the next election and everyone is fighting over trivia, these sort of really fundamental, important actions that have to be taken are often considered a waste of money, believe it or not.
1: So now thinking about the bigger picture and some of the issues you already touched upon, what do we need to do to avoid the climate chaos turning into climate catastrophe?
0: I am not an expert on this at all. I mean, not, I'm an archaeologist. I deal with the past. I think, without question, one of the, and these are very general comments, we need decisive international leadership. Because the big thing now, I mean, in the past, climate change ultimately, ultimately was a local problem. Why? Because everybody lived within Small territories, the confines of an empire, the fortifications of a city, our perspective, and where our food came from, ultimately was a fairly limited area. This, of course, changed dramatically within growth of empires: Cambodian Empire, the Inca in South America, the British Empire, all this, and this internationalized food supplies, among other things. And what we're now living in isn't the world where there is Russia and Bulgaria and Greece and England and Peru. We're living in a world that really is global, where we can communicate instantly with people on the other side of the world, where we can really make decisions about issues in seconds between now here and Australia. I had an animated conversation on the web with Australia yesterday about a date, a site, the date of a site. Even 20 years ago this would have taken at least a week of emails or very expensive phone calls. And we live in a world where we live in each other's pockets and we live in a world where humanity is very diverse, where social change is vital, and yet we live in a world where there are major, major social differences between different segments of society. Inequality, this is apart from race and all that. You're talking about societies whose survival depends on concerted actions to reduce deforestation, to slow carbon levels to produce enough food for everybody to make sure water is available to recharge water tables the list goes on and on and on and 95% of these problems ultimately are global in the final analysis because many societies many communities the one I live in here for example are taking action on a 20 or 30 year time frame, maybe, to do something about sea levels. They're drawing maps, they're deciding what strategies to take and so on. But what do you do in somewhere like San Francisco, where there is uh, hundreds of acres or hectares of landfill, which, if the sea level rises sharply, which it's going to do up there, is gonna flood enormously valuable. Residential or business land. What do you do? Do you move housing and buildings to higher ground in advance of this? Think of the social disruptions. These are the sort of issues we've really got to, to grapple with. And it's no use just shoving them down the pike. It won't work. We live in a world which is now truly a global society and a global world. Nationalism, the pettiness of nationalism, And indeed, the pettiness of a lot of religion is outmoded. We are human beings facing common issues, which we created.
1: So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Climate Chaos, surprised you the most?
0: A number of things. We were focused, of course, Nadia and I, on the past. That was our charge, our job. One thing that struck me was the amount of new information we have. We know, for example, a great deal about the drought cycles of the mire. We now know why Angkor Wat failed. Why? Because ultimately its irrigation systems were overwhelmed and because of persistent drought which affected a society which depended very heavily on very sophisticated, precise, canal building, and the movement and storage of water. We and This really surprised me. I didn't realize that. I was very surprised about the quality of the research which has been done on the history of the Little Ice Age now. I mean, people are really looking at the impacts in small towns and so on. This is marvelous stuff. And I think the other thing, the biggest thing that always surprised me was that it really has a fairly direct relevance to the world we live in in terms of some surprising things. One of our most effective weapons against disaster is that of ourselves. If you look at Hurricane Katrina or some of the big disasters that have inflicted North America, one of the most striking things that comes out Again and again and again, is just how important communities are. Kin ties, not only close kin ties like husband, wife, children, but extended family, cousins, aunts, organisations you're a member of, churches, societies, the Lions, Rotary, whatever you want. The Clubs you're a member of? Because when things get bad, people tend to rally around people they know. And many of the things that have been most effective, for example, with the hurricane in New Orleans, were actions taken by churches and community organizations, which were able to move very effectively and fast. Why? Because they knew people and they knew who did what and to whom. And I really think this is one of the biggest weapons we have is the fact that we have kin, we have obligations of kin, and we have obligations to fellow human beings through the societies and connections we have. And that's very important. To some degree, one of the most important qualities of being a human being is networking, be able to network with people. I mean, with what you do, you must know the importance of networking between scientists, because somebody will have an idea, and they'll say, what about Sanzo? And you'll go, oh my goodness me, that's what I needed, that link. And these sort of moments, aha moments, as they're called over here, are really very, very important. And these sort of moments can really make a difference when people are poor, when they need community help, food packages, whatever. And that to me is the most important lesson I learned from this book, how important the past
1: is for these sort of other subtle lessons. And if you could time travel, is there a time period that you would really like to visit? Me? I don't know. Uh,
0: I'd love to have seen parts of the 18th century in Europe. I'd love to have visited the Khmer Empire based on Angkor Wat at the height of its power. I'd hate to have been one of its citizens, but it was an incredible display. I'd love to have walked in London in Little Ice Age and again in the height of the Industrial Revolution. It would have been unpleasant, smelly, and dangerous, but it would have been fascinating. What I, I mean, like all archaeologists... I wish I could go back and visit with people I've studied because this is not only interesting because you wonder how right you are, but also because they often have insights we didn't have. One of the most striking things for me, having lived among and studied subsistence farmers in Africa, is the extraordinary knowledge they have of their environment in ways that you and I don't. And I've also noticed this in Fishermen in the North Sea in Europe. I am a sailor in another part of my life. And in Africa, I remember my African researcher student introducing me to his father, who had a small farm and he had cattle. And he walked me around in one place and said, Oh, they'll, the cattle will be there in a month. And I said, Why? And he looked at me as if I was an idiot and said, Ah, but the grass here, which is of this type, and he gave me the African name, will be ready for eating them. And I was there a month later, and by God, they were there. He had an exciting, exactly. encyclopedic knowledge of the vegetation, of the consequences of rainfall, what to do if there was a drought, and so on. And in the question of fishermen, I had experience with fishermen, and those guys knew more about the weather and forecasting it, more about what waves meant and the shape of them, more about what was on the bottom than any sailor I've met today. And for example, the Aleutian Indians up in the North Pacific had, I think they still do probably, (coughs) at least 20 words which described specific conditions of the ocean and waves. That's the sort of traditional knowledge which is so useful when studying climate change. Do we still have it? Some of it, but a great deal has been lost, and it's invaluable.
1: Well, this has been truly thought-provoking discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
0: (laughs) Forgive me laughing. (laughs) I finished the climate change book with Nadia. We are responsible for seven textbooks. And one of the crosses we have to bear is to revise these. And we're just about to start revising one of them. At the moment, we don't have another book on the way. We're thinking. We're looking for ideas. I'm spending a lot of time reading about early agriculture and early cities. I yet haven't been excited. Uh, we looked at a book on fire, but there are too many books on the subject. The other problem is now there were so many books that one wonders if it's worth writing another one. Um, I really don't have any idea what we're going to do with Kanina in specific terms, but we will continue writing books. And it will be about the past. My guess is it will be something that draws on all kinds of academic disciplines, and it will be something that will be written for a general audience. If you ask me to be more specific, I would smile sweetly and say, I don't know, and that's the truth. Ask me that question in six months, I'll probably have an idea. I'm afraid that's not a very good answer, but in being an author, it takes more time very often to have an idea than to write it up.
1: I'm sure you'll find a fasc- some fascinating subject to write about. <laughs> we'll try so where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book
0: there is a there's a lot of web entries on me i don't do social media i've had nothing but trouble with it you can find all my books on amazon and there's a list of books and reviews and so on on my website on the uh, the web um uh, If you look up Brian Fagan on Google, you'll find a lot of stuff. Um, Amazon has a very complete listing of them. So that's the conventional sources.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great fun. I enjoyed it. You asked
0: good questions.